happens over these next moments that we would lift up and glorify and exalt the name of Jesus. And so do that work, Lord. We pray these things in his name. Amen. If you got your Bibles this morning, turn to John chapter 12. And as you're turning now, I wonder if you, if you just realize the opportunity that you just had. I wonder if you were aware of the opportunity that you were just given moments ago. Uh, if you were aware that you had the opportunity to, to take part in the one thing that you were created to do. You, you know, you just had that. You see, you were not placed on this earth for your glory. As, as much as it may shock you, this planet would have functioned and moved on just fine without you. And it would have moved on just fine without me. What you were is you were intrinsically designed by an eternal holy God for his glory. You were created not because God needed you, but you were created that you would bring glory to his name and to him. And Revelation 4 tells us that your eternal purpose, that what you will actually do for the rest of time, what you actually do forever is to worship and glorify God. And so since this is your design, so this is what you were built to do, there's something that practically plays out in our lives because of this. And here's what it is. Because you were designed this way, you are bowing to something this morning. You are because you were made to. You were made to bow. You were made to worship. There is something that you have surrendered yourself to. There's something that you are pursuing. There's something that you are declaring as God of your life. And so all this month, we're going to be looking at John 12. And what we really want to get to is this question. What are you really worshiping in and with your life? What is it that you're lifting up? Some of these things, as we saw last week, some of these things are really easy to identify. It's even easy for others to identify them in us because they're kind of public. They're, they're out there. We saw that last week when we started in John 12 and we looked at the, the stories of Mary and Judas right at the start. And it's clear to see, just all you have to do is read it. It was clear to see that for Mary, her heart was set on worshiping and glorifying Jesus Christ. And it was clear to see that for Judas, his pursuit and his passion and his identity was in wealth and money. And that it was just easy to identify. You see, there are other things uh, that, that people worship that are easily identifiable as well. For instance, I'm a huge sports fan. I just am. Um, but even in that, you understand, I have to check myself. Because just think about that title. The word fan there is short, literally short for the word fanatic. Make no mistake about it, there are throngs of people in our country who find their identity in, who find their joy in, and who invest vast amounts of time and money and emotion into a sports team. And what it does is it moves beyond an interest or liking of sports to something that is entirely unhealthy. There are hopeless romantics out there, okay, who, who what they are worshiping is their latest love interest. There's a song written by a lady named, named Diane Warren, and this song uh, became quite popular in country music, at least I'm told that, um, because you see, the, despite being born and raised here in Indiana, uh, I don't like country music, all right? And I recognize that I just lost about 60% of you, okay? And you're sitting there thinking, well, what about Garth Brooks? He said, God, you thank God for unanswered prayers. Isn't that good? You know, no, country's not good, all right? Hear me out. I've got good reasons for this, all right? This is, this is, this is the foundational truth of my life, not really. But um, I think if we could go back and rid the world of country music, 
this earth would be a better place to live. All right? So say, just hang with me here. I've, I, I've got some evidence for you here. Just think if we could reverse the effect. All right? So, so think through every country song you heard and then play it backwards. What would happen? Right. The guy sobers up. That's a good thing. All right? His truck begins to work again. He gets back with his girl and his dog is resurrected back to life. Now, who doesn't win in that situation? Who doesn't win? All right? All right, but see, this Diane Warren wrote this song, and it was picked up by Trisha Yearwood, and then covered by Leanne Rhymes and Faith Hill, and it was, well, I'm told it was number one on the charts for weeks, all right, so it was just a massive hit. But do me a favor, I googled the lyrics this week, I'm just going to read you the first verse in the chorus, and I just want you to listen to what this song is saying. Okay, this song was written from a woman's perspective to her male love interest, and it's titled this, How Do I Live Without You? Not a healthy start, okay? So just listen to these words. How do I get through one night without you? If I had to live without you, what kind of life would that be? I'm already thinking for the guy, it's probably a whole lot less creepy of one, okay? All right, it continues. Oh, I need you in my arms. I need you to hold. You're my world, my heart, my soul. We've got a stage five clinger here. All right, this woman's got issues, all right? It goes on. If you ever leave, baby, you take away everything good in my life. Doesn't say a whole lot for this woman's life decisions right up until she met this guy, does it? All right. And here's the chorus. Listen, just listen to it. Tell me now, how do I live without you? I want to know, how do I breathe without you? And if you ever go, how do I ever survive? This has got to be the codependent song of the last century. But you see, as much light as I'm making fun of it this morning, and deservedly so, you know, don't you? You know that there were, were people who heard these words coming through the car speakers, or the radio speakers, the CD players, iPods, and there was someone who was coming to their mind, and they were agreeing with the lyrics, and you know that most likely the vast majority of them were not thinking of Jesus Christ in that moment. You see, we're going on this journey through John 12 because all throughout this chapter people are lifting up and worshiping something and all the while Jesus, God in the flesh, the eternal creator and the eventual object of our eternal worship and glory was right there in their midst and so many of them just missed him. They just flat missed him. They turned the other way. They rejected his truth. They rejected his identity. They rejected him and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. But not all of their worship you see, not all of the objects of their worship were so easily seen. Because there are things that people bow to that are unseen. You know, there are visible things that we bow to. There are ideals and passions and pursuits that though we cannot touch or physically see or relate with, we can wholly and completely give our lives to them. So today in John 12, we're going to meet a group of, of guys who's worshiping just the thing. And so last week we looked at the first eight verses of John 12. So we're going to start this week in verse 9. So look there in your words with me. John chapter 12 verse 9 says this. When all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to him and also to see Lazarus. The man that Jesus had raised from the dead. Then the leading priests decided to kill Lazarus too. For it was because of him that many people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. All right, so if you, if you know the Gospels, you know that throughout Jesus' ministry, he often created a buzz and a scene. Often, on many occasions, there'd be large crowds pressing against him and squeezing in to see him and touch him and hear him and, and maybe be healed by him. But here in John 12, this is actually a little bit more intense, and it is so for two reasons. 
First of all, uh, we're told at the end of chapter 11 that Jesus had actually withdrawn from the Jews for a while. He'd withdrawn from the public eye. He'd withdrawn from, from the mass people. And he went to this, this wilderness in Ephraim to be with his disciples away from the crowds. All right. But now he's, he's making his journey back to Jerusalem. And what's happening in Jerusalem is everyone is gathering for this Passover celebration. And Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming knowing full well he's coming to give his life on the cross for the sins and rebellion of mankind. So John tells us at the end of chapter 11 that the crowds in, in Jerusalem, they're anxiously awaiting his arrival. They're saying, have you seen him? Have you seen him? Do, you, do you know, is he coming? Have you seen him? Has anybody here heard from him? All right. And so when word spreads that he's in Bethany, which is literally right next door to Jerusalem, just right outside of it, they, they just start fleeing. All right. They start flocking out there and it, it's heightened even more because in Bethany, Lazarus lives there. All right. And word spread about what Jesus did in Lazarus' life, how Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And so people are going out to see Lazarus to confirm this story that they've been hearing. And when they see Lazarus and he confirms the story, and, and when all in his town confirm the story, John tells us that they all start believing in Jesus and sitting back in Jerusalem and just fuming are the Pharisees. Because it should be Jerusalem, not Bethany, that's filling up. It's right before the Passover. All the Jews should be coming to see the Pharisees. They should be coming to be served at the temple by the Pharisees. They should come and find their spiritual worth in, in the rituals and laws that the Pharisees offered them. Oh, and the Pharisees look up and they, what do they see? They see everyone fleeing. And they're running from them and running to Jesus and his walking, leave, living, breathing miracle friend named Lazarus. And what they are, the Pharisees are beyond desperate because they have lost they have. For three years, they have publicly opposed and protested the ministry of Jesus. For three years, they have tried to debate him at every turn. They tried to trap him. They tried to discredit him. They called him demon-possessed. And every single time, he had this annoying habit of coming out of it looking smarter and more powerful and more legit than they did. And now to top it all off, he's got this trump card that they can't handle. Because everyone's going out to see Lazarus too. And doesn't that really end the debate? I mean, just picture yourself debating with someone back and forth. And you make your big, huge point, And they sit there and they listen to you and say, okay, okay. Hey, dead guy, come back to life. And he comes back like, he, he just won the debate. You have no argument to that. All right? And so John tells us that these Pharisees, these priests, they're angry, they're defeated, they're mad. So what they do is they hatch a plan. And then I think before we get to the point of that, I think it's understand that we remind ourselves of what the role of these priests really were. They were to be God's witnesses here on earth. They were to do his bidding, to do his work, to glorify him, to teach their nation what God is like and what he wants in response from them. They are to be simply God's representatives on earth. And that group gets together and one of them says, hey, what if we commit murder? And the rest are like, I like that. Let's roll with that plan. Sounds good to me. All right, and as messed up as that is, John includes a key word in verse 10. Depending on your translation, he tells us that the leading priests decided to kill Lazarus too, or they decided to kill Lazarus as well, which means that murder has apparently already been put on the table. They're actually becoming veterans at hatching these plans that go directly against God's law that, we're supposed, that they were supposed to teach and represent. But you see, human beings have this massive ability to justify 
almost any sinful action we do. So to kind of understand what's playing out here, look back one chapter, if you would. Look back at one chapter, John chapter 11, starting in verse 45. It's going to give us a little background to this decision. And John chapter 11, verse 45 says this. Many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. This, he's talking about their Lazarus coming out of the tomb, Lazarus being raised from death to life. All right? He continues in verse 46. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the leading priests and Pharisees called the high council together. What are we going to do, they asked each other. This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. And if we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. And then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. Caiaphas, who was high priest at that time, said, You don't even realize what you're talking about. Don't you realize that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than the whole nation be destroyed? Now to grasp this meeting that the Jewish spiritual brain trust had, I think it's important for us to make sure we understand the the political climate of that time. At this time, Rome was the great power of the day. All right, and so, and so the Romans had an empire that was vast and expansive and included Jerusalem, okay? And, and so for some groups and places, since they were, it was so spread out, the Romans kind of took a hands-off approach. So what they did was specifically with the Jewish people is they set up an agreement with the Jews, and it was basically this, that they could have their temple, they could practice their religion, and the priests and Pharisees could even have rule and legal authority uh, based on the Mosaic law. All right? This is why when Jesus is arrested uh, later in John, you're going to see he's arrested not at the hands of the Romans, but at the hands of the Jews. This is why when he's put on trial, he's not first put on trial by Pontius Pilate, but by the high priest and Caiaphas. Okay? Because what they enjoyed was autonomy. They enjoyed ruling privileges among the Jews. And all the Roman government asked for in return was this, was two things. Number one, always pay your taxes. And number two, don't ever revolt. And as long as you do that, we'll be okay. And so these chief priests got together and they see Jesus' popularity far exceeding theirs. And they see that he doesn't answer to them or see them as authority at all. Well, if you were God, you wouldn't either. All right? And so what happened is, is in where they were sitting, there was really one of two things that could play out in their minds. This is what they decided. The first possibility is that Jesus really is the promised Messiah. He really is from God, okay? Now, the Jews understood the role of the Messiah all wrong, and this is key because they thought the Messiah would come and establish Israel as an earthly nation. And so to these priests, if Jesus was the Messiah, then eventually he'd raise up an army and overthrow Rome and take his seat on the throne. The other option in their minds is that Jesus has no plans of doing that at all. But his fame and his popularity were growing so out of control that those seeking after him, those following him and believing him, would believe he was going to do that. And eventually they would rise up and revolt. And guess what happens then? The Roman army comes in, crushes the revolt, destroys the temple, and and rules the Israelites with an iron fist from Caesar's throne in Rome. But here's the most important thing. They didn't care. You see, they didn't care whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't care what God had in mind for the Messiah, even though we know now it certainly wasn't an earthly rule. They didn't care what God was up to at all. In their minds, if Jesus was allowed to continue to exist, there were only two options, and in neither option did the Pharisees end up on the throne. 
Neither one. In both options, someone other than them was ruling. Someone other than them got the authority and the elite status and the prestige and power that they currently enjoyed. And get this, their worship of that power and that status blinded them to everything else, including what they were called to do. And so what God was up to, what they were to be as spiritual leaders, even what God's law commanded, didn't matter to them as much as protecting that precious power and rule. And so they were going to kill to keep it. Read John. Everyone in John is responding to Jesus, and the Pharisees' response is this. Jesus must be stopped at all costs. He must die. And not only do they want to kill him, but they've got to kill Lazarus too. Because you see, it's really tough to deny that someone's from God when a guy he raised from the dead is walking around talking to people. Do you see the power of what you worship? Do you see the power that it holds over you? Do you see the power that it, it influences your life decisions? It makes you do things you would never think possible because it is calling the shots. In John chapter 3, the, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night as a Pharisee and he makes this admission. He says, we know you are from God. We know it. You think as priests that would carry some weight, wouldn't you? Here in John 11, even at this secret meeting, they say, listen, we can't deny all the miraculous things he's doing. But they couldn't see how glorious those things were. All they saw when they looked at Jesus and his power and his miracles and teachings, all they saw was a threat. He posed a threat to what they really worshipped, which was their own status. And so their response is to kill him and to kill all others who point to him. And by the way, the ruling powers of this world haven't stopped doing that since. We were just getting started. Now, unfortunately, they were not the only ones who somehow missed out on Jesus despite all the evidence. Look back at John 12, but, but jump down to verse 37. I think it's key that we understand this picture that John paints for us here. John 12, verse 37 says this, But despite all the miraculous signs that Jesus had done, most of the people did not believe in him. This is exactly what Isaiah the prophet had predicted. Lord, who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? But the people couldn't believe. For as Isaiah also said, the Lord has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that their eyes cannot see and their hearts cannot understand and they cannot turn and have me heal them. Isaiah was referring to Jesus when he said this because he saw the future and spoke of the Messiah's glory. Have you ever bought into this line of thinking? Did you ever think that if God just somehow did more public miracles than people would believe in him? For instance, if, if God is God, why doesn't he just roll back the clouds and declare, by the way, people of earth, I just wanted to let you know the Bible is my word. It's true in everything it says. Jesus is my son. You need to believe in him. All right, I'll see you later. And the clouds go back. But why wouldn't he do that? See, the problem with that kind of thinking is not just that it removes faith, and we're told that without faith it's impossible to please God. The main problem with that idea is that it just wouldn't work. It wouldn't. God knows the hearts of man. He knows that even the most amazing, true miracles don't convince people of truth. Jesus put on a show. He did. Lame people walked, deaf people could hear, sick people were healed, blind people could see, dead guys were walking out of graves, and still, John tells us, that most of the people still leaned back, folded their arms, and said, eh, 
I'm not convinced. And here's the reason why. If Christ is not on the throne in your life, no display of his power alone can convince you that he is worthy of that throne. Because your heart belongs to something else. See, John is telling us, uh, John is telling us that God had called this through Isaiah. He called this shot. He knew this was going to happen. It didn't surprise him. This is also Romans 1 that we looked at last week. These people, even when the creator was physically in their midst, were bowing to and worshiping created things instead of Christ. And Isaiah 6 and Romans 1 and here in John 12 all tells us that when they do this, God gives them over to their depraved minds. He basically says, you want to trade the truth of me for a lie? Knock yourself out. And their heart is so set on what they worship that they can't see the truth of Christ right in front of them. Their hearts are so hardened to the point where they do not even desire him. And if they would just turn to him, he'd remove the scales from their eyes and give them a new heart. But they can't. They can't turn. Because their heart belongs to something else. Did you get it? This is why Jesus had to die because sin has messed up humanity so badly that we are incapable of seeing the one thing that can save us from our wretched idolatrous selves. And Christ needed to suffer and die in torment to pay the price for the depravity of sin to reconcile everything back to God, including us, so that God's spirit, Jesus says, could go out and convict the world of its sin and that God's righteousness is available to them through Jesus' death on the cross. This is why Jesus said, when I am lifted up from the earth, when I am put on the cross, I will draw all men to myself because we do not draw ourselves to God. We don't. We are wretched. We are stained. We are blind. We are stubborn. And in that, he pursued us. He made the move to us. Don't ever let yourself get over how amazing and gracious that is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That the only reason that you and I are ever capable of loving Christ is because he first loved us. We must keep that truth at the forefront of our hearts as the focus of our worship, as the zeal in our outreach, and as the center foundation of our truth. Because if we do, it will go a long way into making sure Jesus is in his rightful place in our lives, sitting on the throne. But if we lose sight of that, if we lose sight of that glorious truth, then our hearts and our minds and our desires are distracted and pulled away to other things. And we can make some really fatal mistakes. You'll see one in verse 42. Look at what verse 42 tells us. It's really a miraculous start and a really tragic ending. It says, many people did believe in him, however. Okay. So despite all the depravity of humanity, despite you know, our blindness and our hardest heart, some people looked at it and couldn't deny it anymore. And they believed in him. But however, including some of the Jewish leaders were told, so even these chief priests and Pharisees. Listen to what John says. But they wouldn't admit it for fear that the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise of God. So here's the thing. Despite their sin, despite the depravity of their heart, there were people who could not deny what they saw. They looked at the scene and said, man, this Jesus teaches like he's actually an authority. He speaks more powerfully uh, and radically than anything I've ever heard. Nature actually bows to his command. He even knows the unspoken thoughts that people have. He's performing miracle after miracle. I cannot 
deny in my head that he is God. I cannot deny that, that, he, that he is from God or very well could be God. Even some of the Jewish leaders knew this. But John says they wouldn't admit it. They knew in their head that Jesus was worthy of praise, but they kept silent. They knew he was worthy of devotion, but they stayed in the shadows. They knew he was above all else, only publicly they would never give him that. Because even though he was worthy, their heart belonged to something else. Their hearts belonged to this idol of safety and security. And so because of that, they were ruled by fear. But you know what happened if they admitted they believed in Jesus? The Pharisees would throw them out of the synagogue. And the synagogue, especially if you were a Jewish leader, the synagogue was where you did your work. It's where you got your livelihood. It's where their identity was submitted. It's where people's reputations were formed about you. The synagogue was comfortable. It was secure. It was safe. As long as they didn't open their mouths, well, then they could protect the status quo. As long as they they shut their mouths, they could keep their jobs and keep their paychecks and keep their staying in the community. And so they chose safety and security over Jesus. They probably thought that they worshipped him. They probably even believed in their heads that they were a follower of his. But they weren't because they never identified themselves with him, never surrendered to him, never hear me suffered for him. Because what they were bowed to was the altar of security and comfort and safety. Now this, this is a tough one. Because I believe it is one of the greatest, if not the greatest temptation facing American Christians. And part of the reason why it's so dangerous is not because it's so prevalent, but because it doesn't originate in evil. It doesn't start with bad intentions. I mean, just think of it. When we pray for others, what do we pray for? We pray for healing. When we appeal to God, we ask for blessings. When we travel or go on mission trips even for the gospel of Jesus, we pray for safety. And none of those things are bad. In fact, they're good. It's, it's virtuous to do so. It's a virtuous and great thing to appeal to God for his healing and blessing and protection. But again, just like we talked about last week, all of these things are just pointers Our prayers and and God's answers to them and and his gifts to them are just a pointer. It's designed to roll our affection and worship upwards to Jesus. But what our hearts can do is twist this. You pray enough prayers for healing. You appeal to God enough times for blessing. You beg him for safety enough times. And what can happen is if we're not careful, we can stop right there. And we can worship the things that God can do for us. Rather than God himself. And when that happens over time, my number one aim in life and my number one aim in interactions, my interaction with God is for my safety and my security and for the safety and security of those I love most. And what we don't end up praying is this, God, you are on the throne, have your way in me. Just use me as you see fit to bring glory to your name and your kingdom regardless of what that is. You see, for some American Christians, comfort has become one of the criterias for doing God's will. For even more than safety has become the single criteria for doing the will of God. God, send me anywhere. It's just as long as it's safe. 
God, I, I'm open to you. I'll, I'll do what you want, you know, as long as it's comfortable. God, whatever you ask for, it's yours. It's all yours, assuming that it doesn't impede on the standard of living that I've set for myself and my family. God, I will worship you unless I will be ridiculed and have to suffer for it. But I know you're God and, and you're good and I pray to you and go to church and read my Bible, so we're still cool, right? I'm just not ready to bleed for this. I'm just not ready to give sacrificially for this. I just, God, the thing is I just don't trust you with my kids. I'm not ready to suffer for this because honestly, can't, can I be a Christian and be comfortable? I'm sure God understands isn't God okay with me wanting to be safe? Well, well, is he? Really? This is what Jesus said. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, he must first deny himself. So your wants, your wishes, your desires, even your safety, that doesn't matter anymore. Come after me, you must first deny yourself. Second, take up your cross. Okay, so now you pick up an instrument of torture and death and carry it with you. And third, you follow me, which means this. Jesus is leading and he's not asking you for directions. You were not created for comfort. You were not created for safety. You were not created for security. It's not living. It isn't. It's just existing. And if you're ever honest, deep down, your heart longs for something more. You are bored. And the reason that you are bored is because you have not surrendered your life. You are bored because you are still trying to call the shots under the veil of protecting the ones you love most. And what you're missing all along is that what God has for you is what is ultimately best, even if we don't think it looks that way on the surface. Well, let's just ask the question. We can even start without making it that spiritual at all. Just when is the last time in your life that your palms were even sweaty because you were nervous or scared? When's the last time that even happened? When's the last time that you needed God to bail you out of a situation because you went into it knowing he'd have to in advance? When's the last time you put yourself at risk for anything? When's the last time your faith actually cost you? Not, not a little bit of time or a predetermined budgeted amount from your account, but really, truly cost you. When is the last time you did something completely illogical because you knew Jesus was asking you to? When was the last time you suffered or faced persecution for your faith? You might be thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, we live in America, this is the land of the free, we're welcome to be here. We don't have to face that. That's not true at all. Here's what the Bible says in 1 Timothy. It says that anyone, it's a really inclusive term, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will face persecution. When's the last time that you did not deny Christ before men? But instead you claimed him and exalted him. See, here's, here's the honest message of scripture when it comes to your time on this earth okay you need to understand when it comes to your time on this earth here's what the new testament tells you follow christ it might end terribly for you it just might 
Okay? I mean, think of these guys in the New Testament we talk about and read from. They all died horribly. Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest person who ever lived. Those are Jesus' words, not mine. And you know what he got for that? He died by getting his head cut off at the order of a cowardly king who was doing the request of a stripper. John, the guy who, who wrote this book that we're spending this month in, he was thrown into a pot of boiling oil to kill him. And when somehow he survived that, it freaked them out, and so they exiled him to a remote island. Paul was beheaded for, for preaching in the name of Jesus. Peter was crucified upside down. James, with this half-brother Jesus, he was, taking to, he was taken to the top of the temple and thrown off of it. And the fall broke both of his legs but didn't kill him. So his attackers gave him one last chance to recant and admit that Jesus wasn't God. And he refused and began praying for them. So they beat his face and head with sticks until he died. Now does that sound like the prayer of Jabez? Does that sound like your best life now? See, the call in the Bible is for us to glorify and worship Christ above all else. He is preeminent. He is our prize. He is the goal. And so whatever else happens to us, that is okay because nothing can separate us from the love that is found in Christ Jesus. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 10. Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. And here's why. They can't touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And when we realize that even though we're living out a brief time here, when we realize that we are playing on the stage of eternity, all of a sudden that anything that can happen to us here cannot compare with what is waiting for us there. Read Paul's letter. By worldly standards, he had a terrible life. Right? He was beaten. He was whipped three times. He was shipwrecked three times. Man, if I get one shipwreck, I'm not getting on another boat, all right? One time he was shipwrecked, and he found his way onto an island, and he was bit by a snake. At what point do you say, come on, Lord, I'm doing your work here. Give me a break. Do you know what Paul said after all that? He said, I consider that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. See, it's Jesus. First in everything, nothing else to gain, nothing else to strive for, nothing else to serve, nothing else to desire. Jesus is our prize and our aim and our worship because he alone is eternal. And this is what you must understand, whether, whether you're worshiping something we've touched on this morning or not, whether you, you like power or status or safety or security, or if it's anything else at all that we haven't even mentioned other than Christ. Here's what you have to understand, that thing that you're clinging to. A thing that it has your heart, that thing that you are bowing to. If it is not Jesus, here is the guarantee. You will lose it. You will. You will lose it. It will let you down. You will lose it no matter how tightly you hold to it. Because only Christ is eternal. Those leading priests and Pharisees who were dead set on killing Jesus and his followers... They were dead set on it because they wanted to keep their, their rule in their temple. They were so blinded to everything, they didn't even realize that, that God was calling the shots. They thought they orchestrated the cross and the execution. Even after that, they did all that to keep their rule in, in their temple. And still, and still after all of that, within most of their lifetimes, guess what happened? Rome marched on Jerusalem and the temple was burnt to the ground. And all of their power and rule and authorities that they once held was erased forever. They've never got it back. 
and those few in their midst, the ones that had come to the point where they knew that Jesus was God, only they decided to keep their mouths shut so that they could stay safe and comfortable. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 32, 33, everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I will acknowledge them before my Father in heaven, but everyone who denies me here on this earth, I will deny him before my Father in heaven. And if their heart and their worship never changed, then do you see the irony in their pursuit of safety and security? They surrendered an eternity where all pain and death and tears and separation are removed forever, and they traded it for an eternity of torment and suffering. Whatever you're clinging to, if it's not Christ, you're going to lose it. And you're going to lose it badly. You see, for the Lazaruses of the world, the, the prize is Jesus. And I, I know the objection that's going through some of your heads right now. Of course Lazarus couldn't deny Jesus. He couldn't. I mean, he was dead, and Jesus made him alive again. He's got a, a, a distinct advantage over us. Even if people are gunning for him, he's going to side with the guy who raised him from the dead. Right, I'll grant you that. But you know what Colossians says about you and I in this room who are in Christ today? It says you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive in Christ for he forgave all of your sins. You see, Lazarus could not deny the work of Christ because he was dead and Jesus made him alive again. Peter and Paul and John and Stephen and James, all the other saints willingly suffered and died for Christ because they saw Jesus dead with their own eyes and then they saw him alive again. And no matter what, if you have a brain in your head, you're gonna side with the guy who walked out of his own grave. But you and I, see, we have the privilege and experience or we have the privilege of knowing and experience both of those things. Here's how it stands. We have no excuse not to bow at the feet of Jesus and let him have his way on us and serve him no matter what the cost because we know that he was dead and arose again and because we were dead and he made us alive again. We got both. And so friends, I, I get the draw. I, I do, I really do. I understand the temptation, and, and I succumb to it way more than I care to admit. I get it. I need you to know that. I get, I get that a healthy back looks a lot more desirable than one that's been whipped so badly your, your spine is exposed. I get that. I understand that, that a comfortable bank balance looks way better than living day to day, check to check, moment to moment, relying on God to provide.